Duke's mail. Do you get it? Because only the ones that get it really get it. Your friends get it. Your mom gets it. Your grandma gets it. Your neighbors get it. Sometimes a dog gets it. Get out of there. What else? Uh, your potato salads get it. BLTs get it. Tailgates get it. And restaurants get it, too. By now, even you probably get it. So get it today. Made without any sugar since 1917, Duke's is that little southern something that makes good things better. Get Duke's. It's got twang. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in for this special episode of Beer Guys Radio. Today, we're attending the Georgia Craft Brewers Guild Dreamers Workshop at Gate City Brewing in Roswell, Georgia. The purpose of this workshop is to share valuable information with those looking to open a craft brewery or brew pub. This is part one of a two-part series. In part one, we'll hear from Taylor Harper of TFH Beverage Law on the legal aspects of opening your brewery. Jason Sleeman of Fifth Third Bank will join us to talk about financing your brewery from the beginning through the first 18 to 24 months of operation. And we'll be joined by Pat Tooley of Porter Cadle Moore, who will share information on the accounting and tax aspects of opening your brewery, including how to choose the right business entity under the new tax laws. Be sure to check out part two of the series, where we'll hear from professional brewers on what they wish they'd known before opening their brewery. Without further delay, let's join our first panel. Thanks, everybody. We appreciate you joining us here today. So uh, as Patrick gave you some of the information, there's a wide mix of people that are looking at opening craft breweries in Georgia right now. So this panel is coming together today to kind of address some of those needs. You know, most people that want to start a brewery want to do so because they're passionate about their beer. Usually it's a home brewer that has moved into wanting to go professional, receive good feedback from his friends, family, who they're getting free beer. So, you know, good feedback (laughs) usually is a guaranteed there. But there's a lot more to running a successful brewery than just making good beer. So today's panel is going to talk about some of those topics, some that can be kind of difficult for a brewery dreamer, someone that just has a passion for beer. So they will talk to you about the importance and the, time, and the timing needed to engage a CPA, attorneys, and bankers as you go through the process. They'll also talk to you about the navigating the pros and cons of the different business entity types, what the benefits are there for an LLC, LLP, S-Corp, C-Corp, those types of settings. They'll also talk to you about funding, developing successful budgets through investors, management investor funding, and loans. They'll discuss assessing physical locations for your brewery, and a lot of that can depend on the type of brewery that you want to open. And finally, they're going to talk to you some about distributor evaluations and give you the information. At the end of the panel discussion, they will open this up to any questions that haven't been addressed. So with that, I'm going to turn this over to Aaron Williams, and he's actually going to introduce our panelists. Why, thank you, Tim. I appreciate that. Uh, yes, the introduction of the panel here. There's, uh, of course, three experts here for you. Uh, the first one is Patrick Tooley. He is a CPA with Porter Keto Moore, a tax partner with Porter Keto Moore, over 30 years in a public accounting, and he has led Porter Keto Moore's tax practice since 2003. Previously a partner with KPMG and worked with clients across a range of industries on state and local tax matters, planning and compliance, as well as business structure planning and mergers and acquisitions assistance. Pat currently heads up PKM's craft beverage niche, serving several separate brewery and brew pub clients in the region. So, Patrick, uh, just raise your hand and just uh, say, hey, thanks to be here. Very good. Thanks for being Excellent. here. And... Our second expert panel uh, here with a cool hat on is Taylor Harper. He is an attorney with TFH Beverage Loan. Taylor's legal focus is on the beverage alcohol industry. Taylor's practice encompasses assessing, assisting his clients in all phases of operations, including startup, structuring and governance, licensing and permitting, franchise regulation, including proceedings concerning notices of intention to change wholesalers, trade practices regula- regulation, promotions regulation, including regulation of point-of-sale materials and consumer specialty advertising, Brand and label regulation, trademark, taxation, importation, and related real estate leasing and landlord-tenant matters. Uh, The firm also handles federal and state court litigation, such as constitutional and antitrust challenges, such as the Commerce Clause and Sherman Act, and to the three-tier system for regulation of alcoholic beverages and constitutional challenges to different taxation of imported alcoholic beverages, such, again, as the Commerce Clause and the Import-Export Clause. I think you deserve a round of applause. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. 
That's 20 years of radio for you right there. And finally, for our last uh, expert, is Jason Sleeman. He is an investment banker with Fifth Third Bank. Jason has been a business banker with Fifth Third Bank for the past seven years. He has over 13 years of financial industry experience working with businesses across many industries. Jason services companies with revenues between 2 and $20 million, bringing additional expertise to manufacturing, restaurant, and service industries. Within the service sector, Jason has developed a unique understanding of the craft brewing and distilling industries and is an active member of the Georgia Craft Brewers Guild. He is passionate about helping his clients grow and succeed. This dedication to his clients has earned him the recognition as a recipient of the prestigious Fifth Third Bank President Circle Award. Again, thanks for joining us all today to share your expertise. And uh, Pat, we're going to go ahead and turn the discussion over to you guys. Actually, leading off for us oh, today, there. Taylor's going to get... Sure. Even better. How's this working? Can everybody hear me? Okay, great. <laughs> so uh, thanks to my fellow panelists in uh, Gate City for having us. This is always fun. Uh, I am the chair of the craft manufacturing practice at TFH Beverage Law. And I'm going to kind of give you a lot of this. Hopefully you already know. Um, we'll get into the more nitty gritty in a little bit here, but some just kind of find foundational aspects of the regulatory framework that you're about to enter into. Um, there are essentially five that I like to go over. Uh, you can see them up there. There's three jurisdictions. Three-tier system of distribution, Tidehouse laws, dealing with ownership, cross-tier ownership, sometimes also called thing of value prohibitions, uh, franchise law in terms of distribution, and then licensing and permitting. Uh, what are the jurisdictions that you have to get licenses from? What's the timeline? What's the order? All that sort of stuff. So the three jurisdictions, you've got your federal, your state, and then your local local consisting of either city or county. If you're in the city limits, it's going to be the city that governs alcohol uh, in that region. And if you're in an unincorporated county, it'll be the county. The only time you have any crossover is, you know, particular, maybe for water or waste management or something like that. But in terms of alcohol, it'll be one or the other. Um, at the state level, it's the Georgia Department of Revenue, and within the Georgia Department of Revenue, there's the Alcohol and Tobacco Division uh, that governs alcohol in Georgia. And then at the federal level, we have what we refer to in short as the TTB. That's with whom you will apply for your uh, federal brewer's notice. Three-tier system. Hopefully everybody's somewhat familiar with this. It's the three-tier system of distribution. Suppliers, you guys, make it, sell it to your wholesaler. Your wholesaler then sells it to the retailer, and the retailer sells it to the consumer. There are very limited exceptions to this. Uh, recently, September 1st, an exception came into place in Georgia. Thank goodness we were the last state in the nation to do that, unfortunately. Uh, but it's here. Yay. And so now you can walk there or walk right here and, uh, and buy a pint. Um, Tide House, this is a, a term that a lot of people actually are not familiar with. Um, it comes from pre-prohibition days when manufacturers would have an ownership interest in retail outlets in saloons or bars, either through direct ownership or through some type of contractual control. And so the manufacturer was tied to the saloon or to the bar. And the thought was, or the theory was, that that led to a proliferation of saloons because that saloon would only sell that one manufacturer's product. And so if another manufacturer wanted to sell its product in that area, it had to open up a saloon. And so you had all these saloons opening up, and it, in theory, led to intemperance. And so after uh, prohibition, uh, the federal government in almost every state implemented some form of Tide House prohibitions, which is a prohibition over cross-tier ownership. So if you guys are going to be suppliers, you can't have an interest in a wholesaler. You can't have an interest in a retailer, a restaurant, or a bar. And that is something a lot of people don't consider when they're going and seeking funding. When you are going to go out and seek funding and you're going to do uh, investor questionnaires, private placement memorandums, and things of that nature, that needs to be taken into account. 
I've had on a couple of occasions at least people get investors on board. We are way down the road, about to start the licensing process, and I'm you know completing the application, and there's always a question on the application about whether you have an interest in other tiers. And only to find out that, oh wait, this, you know, 12% shareholder, 12% member of the company has an investment in a restaurant. Well, that's problematic. And he either has to divest his interest in that restaurant or divest his interest in the, in the brewery or the brew pub. Um, so think about it on the front end and incorporate it into your offering docs so that it doesn't catch you later on. Uh, this is the actual Georgia regulation that governs Tidehouse. Uh, it is incredibly broad. It's one of the broadest Tidehouse regulations in the country. You can see, I, I can't really see there, but I know it talks about um, owner, ownership interests, partnership arrangement, um, or business association. Well, goodness sakes, what is a business association? I mean, anything could fall into that which is great for the Department of Revenue because it gives them a ton of discretion to decide what is or what isn't a Tidehouse prohibition based upon the, certain, you know, the facts or circumstances involved in that particular case. Not good for you guys. So you need to try to stay away from those, if you can, those types of problems. Um, I also mentioned thing of value prohibitions. This is where instead of having a direct ownership, a manufacturer is giving something of value to a retailer. The, the fear is that if you give something of value to a retailer, that the retailer is going to somehow feel induced or coerced to selling your product to the exclusion of other manufacturers' products, and that is a violation of Tidehouse prohibitions. The, the thing of value stuff doesn't really implicate what you're doing at the startup phase, but once you get up and running, you're going to have lots of opportunities for promotions and beer dinners and all sorts of different sweepstakes you might want to run, and it can really come into play there, and you just need to be mindful of it. <clears throat> all right, distribution. So this has always been a you know one of the biggest factors. It's possibly not as big a factor now because we have retail sales and you know, revenue, uh, the only revenue stream you had previously was distribution, whereas now you at least can rely somewhat on retail sales, if not wholly on retail sales. Um, it's called the franchise system, and you're going to hear that a lot as you operate in this industry. And it's kind of a misnomer now. Uh, it, it wasn't when it started. When, you know, back pre-prohibition, post-prohibition, immediately after prohibition, uh, you only had a few large manufacturers that were running the game. And if you had a small family-run wholesaler, say here in Georgia, they were probably only distributing one manufacturer's product. So it really did resemble a franchise. You know, they were the name of, say, Anheuser-Busch or Miller out in the marketplace, and there were no competing brands at that particular wholesaler was selling. So they're out there building the goodwill of Anheuser-Busch in this particular market, and Anheuser-Busch would sometimes just pull the rug out from under them and then go pick a different wholesaler on a whim. Well, if that was the only brand you were selling as the wholesaler, it would crush you. And these were small family-run shops at the time, so they put protections in place to protect those small family-run shops in comparison to those um, large manufacturers. Georgia is what we call a franchise state, which basically means that once you decide to pick a wholesaler, you're kind of married, you're wed to that wholesaler, which is why I have a picture of my wife and I getting married on the beach right there. <laughs> um, and there are only a couple ways out. Uh, to get out, you have to be able to show good cause as to why you can get out. And those are enumerated in statute and regs. Um, you'd have to bring a notice of intention to change wholesaler proceeding, which I'll tell you a little bit about in a minute. Uh, but it's, an, it's quite an ordeal. It's something you don't want to have to get into. Uh, or you can just 
take your brand, stop selling it for four years. Well, that doesn't work very well either. So you want to make sure that you pick the right wholesaler because you're tied to them for a long time, and you want to make sure that you get a a, a distribution agreement. <clears throat> Skip over that. I can't even read what that says from here. Let's see. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> so I, I do like to point this out. Um, when I was, I talked just a moment ago about how, kind of the power dynamic between, you know, immediately after Prohibition, you had big manufacturers and small family-run wholesalers, and now the 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 dynamic has totally shifted, where you have small manufacturers and really large wholesalers, but the rules haven't changed at all, and so I can see in the next five to seven years the rules starting to change to some extent, and we can talk a little bit more about that as to why I think that'll happen. But, you know, right now we have 50, you know, hit or miss breweries, brew pubs in the state. Well, you know, the 13 beer wholesalers that we have can hardly handle that as it is and that many skews. Well, what happens when we have 200 breweries in the state who all want to distribute? They're not going to be able to handle that many skews, and at some point... At some point, they're going to say, you know what, it makes more sense if we take these brands on once you hit, say, 7,500 barrels. Then come to us. Before that, you guys handle it. We don't even know if we can make money off of you before it anyways. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's still a long ways away in the big scheme of things, but at some point, it's going to happen. So there's really two components to distribution in Georgia. There's what I call the regulatory designation, and then there is the distribution agreement. On the regu regulatory designation side, it's a form that you fill out and you submit to the Department of Revenue. It's called an ATT-104, and I'll show it to you in a second. But you basically, you do two things with it. One, you register your brands, and two, you designate your wholesaler for a particular territory for those brands that you're registering. One thing you want to keep in mind is sometimes as you're going through this process, somebody will say to you, yeah, well, just go ahead and fill out the ATT-104 and submit it. Do not submit that ATT-104 until you have an executed distribution agreement. Once you have submitted that form and it's been approved, you are tied. Under the law, you are tied, and the only way you're getting out of it is if you can show cause or you pull your brand out of the state for four years. So any leverage you might have had in negotiating a distribution agreement is gone. Not that you have a whole lot to begin with, but <clears throat> a little's better than none. This is the form. So, you know, at the top it's a ABC Brewery appoints XYZ Wholesaler to distribute these brands, and you would list them there. And you put the ABV, and then you would input the territory that that wholesaler is going to distribute to. You know, I, I know I don't have a whole lot of time up here, so I'm not going to get into the nitty-gritty about what a brand is. Um, it gets complicated, and I, but I will say that there are some instances in which a wholesaler is going to have a right to some of your brands and instances in which they're not, at least arguably not. And you use this here, right? You have Duff and then Duff Light and Duff Dry and the idea of a brand extension. You have Budweiser. Well, Bud Light or Bud Dry is a brand extension of Budweiser. It's using the goodwill of the Budweiser name to sell the Bud Light and Bud Dry brand. Um, if you were going to have Budweiser and Natty Light, even though they're both made by Anheuser-Busch, those arguably are not the same, not a brand extension. Those are two different brands, and you could, you could appoint two different wholesalers for them, okay? That can be helpful when you're negotiating a distribution agreement. I'll explain why in a minute. That's just an example of kind of just what I just said. <clears throat> so... The key provisions in the agreement, this other products provision, most wholesalers will say, look, whatever you come out with, you have to appoint us to distribute. I don't like to say that 
I like to put it into the distribution agreement that you have a right to distribute the brands that are specifically listed on Exhibit A or Schedule 1 of this agreement. And that way, in the future, if you come out with other brands, you can add them. Or, potentially, if you're going to say, I'm going to come out with three really great new brands this summer, but you guys aren't doing your job, you're not living up to your obligations, and I'm going to appoint this other wholesaler over here if you don't kick it in gear. And maybe they kick it in gear. Maybe it's a little bit of leverage for you to help them do what they agreed to do. Ultimately, would you actually give your other three brands to a different wholesaler? Probably not. It doesn't make practical sense to do it, but it is a little bit of leverage in a world where you don't have much. And where those where that comes into play is there's two competing provisions. There's competing in the eyes of the wholesaler, at least. There's the other products provision, and then there's the termination provision. Most wholesalers are going to say, this, this agreement is going to be in perpetuity. There is no term. It doesn't end until you can show cause to get out of the relationship. Well, I like to argue that it, it should end. And every once in a while, depending on the wholesaler, you can get both of those terms in there. You can get a termination provision in there, and you can get the other products provision. More likely than not, though, you're probably going to leave with just one or the other and probably just the other products provision. But you can play those two off of each other a little bit. And one of the reasons you can do that is it goes back to the reason we have this franchise system in the first place, right, is they're supposed to be out there marketing the brand building the goodwill behind your name, and should, you shouldn't be able to just pull the rug out from under them. Well, if in the agreement it's negotiated such that they're not going to be out there building the brand, that that's your responsibility, that essentially they're just transporting it from point A to point B, then I would argue that the franchise law shouldn't apply as much and you should be able to get a term, and that sometimes works. However, if they are willing to put money down and make an investment in your brand and to get sales reps out there trying to build your brand and sell your brand, then it makes sense as to why you shouldn't be able to pull the rug out from under them and to maybe not have a term. Make sense? You see that back and forth, and it plays out throughout the uh, negotiation process. The other thing is stuff with sales goals, and promotional spending amounts, and pricing. Not only do you want that in there so that you all are working from the same basis, but if you were ever going to actually bring a notice of intention to change wholesaler to get out of the relationship, and you're, one of the four cause provisions is that you failed, the wholesaler failed to promote the product effectively, well, compared to what? If you don't have a distribution agreement that has sales goals and promotional spending amounts, what are you comparing it to? Oh, we agreed to where? Prove it. And you have to go into a room, a table much like this, with a hearing officer at the end and the wholesalers on one side and suppliers on the other, and you give opening statements and ex direct examination, cross-examination, closings, and ultimately they'll make a, uh, a decision or issue an order two or three months after the fact. But if you, don't, if you don't have an agreement to point to or any sort of evidence to point to, you're going to lose, and you're going to spend a lot of money in that proceeding for no reason. Um, other thing to keep in mind about is the territory. You do not have to designate the entire state. Sometimes it makes sense to designate the entire state to your wholesaler, particularly if your wholesaler is one of the big boys and has the infrastructure to handle it. Um, you could say, uh, a lot of people will do, I'm going to give you the metro Atlanta counties. And then, you know, if, if you do well there, we'll expand from that point forward. That way, if they're not doing well, you can, again, say, I'm going to give it to somebody else. I'm going to give middle Georgia and south Georgia to somebody else because you guys haven't kicked it in gear. Practically speaking, whether you do that depends a lot upon the facts and circumstances and the relationship that you have. But it is a factor to consider when you're deciding whether to give away the, whole ter the entire state. Kind of talked about that. I know I'm taking a lot of time here, but yeah, wait, here we go. Okay, so licensing. Three jurisdictions. At the federal level, you'll get a federal brewer's notice, whether you're a brew pub or a brewery. 
At the state level, you either get a manufacturing license or if you're going to be a brew pub, you'll get a brew pub license and a consumption on-premises license. And then it's all over the place as far as local goes. It depends on the local jurisdiction. But you're going to have to get some form of permitting or licensing from your local jurisdiction. And you would normally start with the federal, which fortunately is happening much faster, about 60 days right now, uh, down from about 180 days. Uh, it's because they implemented overtime pay at the TTB, and so we started getting approvals at, like, one in the morning on Sunday mornings and Sunday afternoons, which is great because um, it's working. Uh, <clears throat> and the next would be local and then state. And the question is, when do you start the local? And it really depends on your local jurisdiction. Some local jurisdictions require that you have the federal brewer's notice in place before you can start the application. Others don't. So if they don't, you could start it simultaneously when you start the application, application for the federal permit. Um, and then last but not least will be the state. And one thing that also you have to think about, it gets a little bit complicated as far as the timing goes. We can use Atlanta, for example. In Atlanta, they will not issue the local alcohol license until you have your certificate of occupancy. So if you file prematurely and... <clears throat> you are sitting there with having gone through all the hearings that you have to go through. The mayor has signed off on it. Well, once the mayor signs off on it, you have six months until you got to start all over again. Well, if your build-out is an eight-month build-out, you need to make sure you time that correctly so that your CO is going to be issued within six months of having the mayor sign it so that you can then turn around and file for the state. Otherwise, you're going to have to start all over at the local level, and it can be a huge pain. So that's the city of Atlanta can be one of the most difficult jurisdictions, but the point is you need to look at whether you have to have your CO prior to the, whether they'll issue the local alcohol license. Um, usually the state will say we won't, we won't even accept the application until you have the local in hand. Um, for the most part, that is true. In certain circumstances, you can file a couple weeks before you're going to have the local and then just upload the local if you need to save a little bit of time, but it depends on the agent you get and whether they're familiar with you. Uh, some other things to think about, you know, you before you, you go and you execute a lease, please don't execute a lease without having talked to me or, or somebody, some lawyer that is familiar with one leases and two leases in the beverage alcohol industry. Um, there are folks who execute leases and have not looked at zoning requirements, have not looked at distance requirements, have not tried to put a licensing contingency in the lease, and then they find out that distance requirements are implicated, that they, ha they have to get a conditional use permit for zoning, but for whatever reason it's going to be really difficult, and th there's no way out of the lease, and it ends up that they end up having to pay the landlord a bunch of money to get out. It's just ugly. It's nasty. It's heartbreaking for them because their dreams have been you know, push to the side for another six months or more. So take a look at those things, and even if you think you absolutely know it, have somebody else take a look at it too. It's worth it in the long run. You don't want to get caught in that situation. Um, there are going to be criminal background checks, tax clearance checks. Um, this is another thing to consider when you're seeking investment. You need to make sure that all of your investors are, one, okay with going through a background check. It's not abs absolute that they're going to have to. You can try to arrange things in a way, depending upon which jurisdiction you're talking about, about limiting disclosure. But for the most part, you need to go in with the thought that the, every member of the LLC or every shareholder of the corporation is going to have to be reported, and they're going to need to be able to pass and be comfortable with going undergoing a criminal background check and a tax clearance. Um, the Department of Revenue will actually come out to the premises and check it out. It's usually not a big deal, but they're you know, sometimes folks want the Department of Revenue to come out and do an inspection before they even have the brewing equipment in there because they're worried about the timeline. 
That's not going to work. Your brewing equipment has to be in there. The last thing that I'll say is I can't emphasize this enough because this happens basically with every single one of my clients, no matter what I tell them. You cannot start brewing until you have all of your licenses and permits in place. You're not even technically supposed to test brew until you have all of them in place. So you cannot plan your grand opening for the day that you get your final license. Why? Because you all know that it takes time to brew the beer that you're going to sell or offer at your grand opening. And we get into this predicament all the time where people have scheduled a grand opening date and the product's not ready and it's problematic. There are no temporary licenses at this point or anything like that to allow you to brew in advance. So whatever you think your opening day is going to be, make it 45 days later just to be safe. Just put that into your business plan. Let's talk about the money part of this. Uh, There's going to be a lot of overlap from what Taylor talked about. So we'll talk about background checks and investors and a couple of those other things too. So I'll talk about the roadblocks. The first thing is take whatever the time you thought it was going to take to get the loan and go ahead and add 60 to 90 days to it. And then add 60 to 90 days for all your contractors and everything else to get on this. So really from when you think that you're going to open, you probably need to add about nine months to when you should be talking to a finance person and investors because there will be roadblocks between you and funding. The first thing that I would talk about is credit and background checks. So anybody who is a 20% or more owner is going to be required by the SBA because most startups are going to go SBA to have those two things happen to them. They're going to require credit to be checked and they're going to require background checks to be done on you and the investors that own 20% or more. And I would tell you that you should be prepared to talk about those because uh, I find more than not in brewing space that something pops up on a background check. It may be drinking underage or it may be doing, you know, 120 on the highway, but those things show up and we've got to explain to what those are, right? So you need to be prepared to have that. And then from a credit standpoint, you need to, you know, the question always asked, this is probably my favorite question as a banker, how's your credit? And everyone says good. And then it shows up that they've got a credit score in like the 500s. That's not good, right? So I always joke that it goes up to 850. And so we really need you to be uh, in that mid 600s and up, right? If you're in the 500s, you're going to need to do some work to get on there. The other part's the equity injection. This is where you're having to decide, do you have the personal capacity to actually put your part of this with the bank, right? The bank's not going to provide 100% financing. And that equity injection varies based on how you're going to do it. Are you going to own a building? Are you going to lease a building? What are you going to do once you get inside that equipment? Is there lots of build out? Is it lots of equipment? The equity injection is a range. uh, And that's going to determine whether or not you have to go out and get investors, whether you're going to be able to put some money to yourself uh, and and how you'll you'll actually get to your portion of what the bank's going to require you to get there. At a very minimum, if we go with a 504, you're going to need 10% of your project costs. So if we take an SBA 504 loan, you're going to need 10%. And depending on how much build-out, leasehold improvements, things that are not really fixed assets, you may have to put up to 30% of that project cost into the loan, right? So if you're doing a lot of uh, improvements to someone else's building, The bank's not going to come and rip down drywall and rip down fixtures to get their money back. They're just going to make you put up more money to start to help mitigate the risk. This is going to be another part where you start talking about investors. And I've got investors a little bit later, but this is where you need to start thinking about your investors and how much you're going to do it. The other part is repayment source. And uh, Pat showed earlier about home brewers and, and kind of where that space is. A lot of people say, great, I'm going to get a bank loan and I'm going to quit my nine to five tomorrow. Well, you can't do that when you have a startup brewery because guess what? It doesn't make money initially. It it loses money for a while. Prior to SB 85, I'd tell you it'd lose money for three years. Now it probably only lose money for about 18 months. And so you need something to keep the lights on at your home and food on your table and a mortgage paid, right? So this is a lot of times where non-guaranteeing spouses, if you've got a spouse that has 
a nine to five that's willing to do that. Or if you can figure out how, if there's three or four partners that are coming together and you're going to slowly but surely integrate yourself, this is a great way to do that, right? Have one partner go out, they stop taking a salary, then the second partner comes in as you're starting to make more money and the third or fourth or however it goes. But not just, just note, because I've experienced this, this loan does not get approved when everyone says, hey, we're going to quit our job tomorrow and we're going to do this, right? The bank, the bank can't approve that loan because you can't repay the loan at that point, right? So you need to figure out how you're going to pay yourself, how you're going to pay the bank. Because, you know, in that first six months or eight months of construction, you're not making any revenue and you're spending money quite fast, uh, we were talking about investors. So one thing to note is any investor of 20% or more is going to have to guarantee, but any investor of 10% or more is going to have to provide financials. The SBA requires that we get financials. That doesn't mean they guarantee it, but they are going to have to um, actually provide financials so we know what their financial look like. This is probably the hardest step in getting financing right now. A lot of investors were really eager at the very first onset of breweries building in Georgia. There's a lot of options now. And if your option really isn't the one that's known or really not going to be in their hometown or you don't have a warm handshake, there's not investors that are beating down your door to give you money, right? It's usually the family and friends. And a lot of times those can only go so far, right? So how many, how many family and friends can you shake down for $5,000 to get where you needed to go? So, you know, there are professional investors and that gets expenses the the angel investors and stuff like that, where they say, Hey, you're going to give us $2,500 and you're going to pitch to somebody and we may or may not like it. That's, that's a hard, that's a hard part to go. Right. So getting investors is a really hard spot. Uh, there are some, some definite stories that we can share about what it looks like from investors, because you think you may have them all lined up. And you don't. So understanding what that looks like from an investor standpoint, you need to have that. Uh, you you really need to have that solidified when you come to a bank because the bank's going to want to know what those investors look like and, and kind of what they're what they're bringing to the table. Uh, construction is another big roadblock. There's some really good construction companies out there. There's some mediocre construction companies out there too, right? How do you know what's going to be good, right? Because you end up getting it and saying, hey, my budget, let's, let's just throw out a budget. My budget's half a million dollars. And then they spend your first half a million dollars and you're only halfway done. And so where are you going to come up with the other money, right? That happens a lot with some of our restaurant clients where they have to come up with two or three or $400,000 more to finish the project the way they want. So make sure that you're taking time with that. And that really does take a long time. So we need full budgets we need contracts. We need things like that to actually be able to do this. You can't just send me an invoice that says, hey, they scratched this out on a piece of paper. We, we can't fund on that. So you, you've got to get to a point where you know what it is and you've got to know what that contract is. And what does that construction look like with your landlord? Do you have to, are they going to give you any tenant improvements? And if they do give you those tenant improvements, are they going to give them to you as you go? Or are they going to make you completely finish out your construction and then give you a TI allowance after you finish? Those relate to how you actually do your loan. So if you're getting them kind of as you go, you may not have to borrow that money, but if you get it at the end, you're going to have to borrow the money and then repay it back. Location, right? Gate City is a great example of a, of a location that you guys would all want, but too bad they're already here, right? Uh, with the new distribution, you want to be on the main street, right? You want to be somewhere where people can come and have a beer and enjoy your tap room. But that is becoming harder and harder and harder every day. The, under the old model, you could go in the back of an industrial warehouse and just pump beer out. And if someone would come and pay you $12 to do a tasting, you were happy with that. Now you need to be somewhere where people want to be social and enjoy the scenery. And so I've got four breweries right now that are sitting waiting for a location. They're they're ready. We have funded them. And the only thing that they've got left is to find a location. And I will tell you what one of the brew pubs that we recently did said their second location, this was their second backup location. The landlord told them, hey, I'm only going to give you a three-year lease because after three years, I feel like I can kick you out and get someone better in here, right? So just remember, the landlords are pretty savage right now. And so you need to make sure that you find where you're going to be and it's got to be the right place for you now. The other part is the experience. Have you owned a business, right? If you haven't owned a business, it's very different than working a nine to five. There's a lot of things that you need to do to try and get in there, right? There's going to be a lot of cleaning toilets and cleaning out lines and doing things that are not fun. And guess what? You're when 
I'll use another great example. I can remember uh, one of our brewers told us that he slept on top of a cooler, one of his walk-ins, and had to keep uh, shorting the, the thing so his beer didn't go out, right? There, there's a lot to being an owner of a brewery. Uh, this was when they were very fir- first on. It's, I think, fixed now. Uh, but, you know, it's kind of one of those things where you say, look, you know, if you haven't owned a, a business, the, the great part about it is, uh, and I'm going to show you later, is it pays you very little. And it requires a lot from you, right? So, so getting into this is going to be a lot. And we're going to, we're going to want to know that too. We want to make sure that, you know, when I ask for your income and balance sheet, that you know what that is, right? And, and hopefully, you know, Pat can help you with that, but we at least want you to know the basics of that. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about deal structure. So how much equity versus how much debt do you want to get? There's benefits to both of those. There's also craziness to both of those, right? If you give away a bunch of equity, and so now you are the owner and you're mopping floors for 5% of the company and someone else owns 95% of the company, it, it does not uh, incense you to work very hard. But if you maintain 95% of it and you only gave away 5%, there's a lot of debt that's probably out there. And so you got to figure out how to manage that. I saw Nancy walk in and she... And I had, uh, where is she? Nancy's right over here. So this is the appropriate time for Nancy to walk in. It's talking about the right size of the loan. So, you know, you would think a banker would want you to borrow as much money as possible, and they do. But when I talked to Nancy, this was right after SB85, she said, if you cannot make money with a small system under the new law, you're doing it wrong. So the right size of loans now look a lot smaller, right? So two years ago, I would have seen business plans where people were saying, hey, I need two or three or $4 million to get this thing up and running. Now I'm seeing people come in all sizes, right? We still see really big loans. If, you, if you're going to buy real estate, there's not a lot of real estate less than a million dollars, right? So you're going to have to punny up some money. But if you're going to someone's leasehold space, then you can do this for three or $400,000. You don't have to go out there and, and spend a bunch of money. There, there is a brewery that I won't mention that all they had to do was buy their equipment, right? They had the, the landlord built out the space for them. They didn't have to pay any of it, right? So there, there is opportunities to start this on the cheap and that will help you because you're not uh, kind of lugged down with all the big debt. This is uh, the next thing is the guarantees. That is probably the number one discussion point that we have is people say, I want to borrow money and I don't want to guarantee it. Me either. Right? So I, you know, I just had a, uh, a food manufacturer that I wanted to work with and they had a, they just went out of business and they just went out of business with almost $3 million in debt, right? The bank makes money by managing risk. And so one of those risks is having a personal guarantee. So just go ahead and swallow it right now you're probably going to have to put a personal guarantee up, right? And so I, I know we can discuss a lot of that more off, like what are the reasons when you wouldn't do that. But for a startup brewery, just get prepared to go ahead and put a guarantee. Anybody who owns 20% or more of your brewery needs to be prepared to have a guarantee. Uh, also looking at the construction schedule, we talked a little about that earlier. You just need to understand how quickly that money's going to come in, how they're going to want to get paid, right? So all, you know, we don't just distribute money out, right? They need to finish a a bit of the work and we need to come out and inspect it. And then we need to make sure that we're okay with the work. So we don't just hand you a bunch of money at the beginning. There there needs to be a schedule and you understand how you're going to do it. Also the collateral collateral and guarantees are two different things. People get that a lot confused. The collateral is how much assets that your business has that we're willing to lend against. And so drywall, although you spent money on it, has about a 1% value to me, right? Because I'm never going to take that drywall back. An equipment has 80 to 90%, right? So it depends on how much you're going to actually, what you're going to spend the money for will tell you how much collateral you'll have. The SBA has a guarantee or a, a provision that says we need to be made whole. So if the SBA, if you have collateral, whether that's a house or it's a car or it's stocks, not in a retirement, they're going to want you to, pledge it to make sure that they feel like they've gotten everything guaranteed. Uh, Last two parts are repayment sources and repayment terms. So how are you going to pay the money back? Like I said before, the first couple of months, you're not paying it back from money from the actual brewery. And even for probably the first 18 months, you're really not going to pay it back. So we are asking our borrowers to start carrying some of your own cash in the business, right? So you've injected some money, but you also need some reserves. 
I'm working with a brewery right now who just came back and said, we're growing so fast that we can't keep up with the demand. Can you give me $100,000 more? We like them, so we're going to give them $100,000 more. But we really don't want to give them $100,000 more. We want them to have that money already injected. Um, you get one shot at going to get money. So this is not something you're going to piecemeal. You're not going to say, hey, I want some money, and then six months come back to me and say, I want some money, and then 12 months come back and say, I want some money, and then 18 months come back and say some money, because you're not profitable at any point of those times. And so we will lend as gospel on your projections. After you operate on day one, we just do your projections out the window and now we're operating on real cash flow. So it, it changes the game. So make sure that you've got enough runway to get yourself to profitability because you need to be profitable for us to lend you money again. Uh, repayments terms. If you're buying real estate, you can get up to 25 years. If you're buying equipment you're and you're going into leasehold space, you're 10 to 12 years, right? So just that's just kind of a, a general repayment where you think that you're going to go is going to be that 25 uh, year for equipment uh, for real estate and then 10 to 12. So I'll talk about the challenges real quick. So slow starts and growing too quickly. Those are both challenges because they both eat up a ton of capital and they eat up a ton of cash and they eat up a ton of equity and they eat up a ton of everything, right? So both of those are problems. Ingredient shortage. If you're reading the same stories that I am, hops are in a shortage. I'm not sure if they really are or not, but they say they are, right? So if you brew with a certain hop, you have enough money to go out and buy that product enough to make your, to make your beer quality issues. We talk about this all the time, and this is a great discussion for a home brewer. You need to be prepared to talk to a bank about this. Are you learning how to be a brewer on my money? And the answer is probably yes, right? If you haven't gotten commercial experience, we've got to talk about that. Are, are, are you learning on my money? Because that's not a great thing for a bank. And so how much, how much of the product are you dumping? How many batches are you dumping? Because your IPA doesn't taste the same way today as it did yesterday. And now all of a sudden something tastes funky in it and you're dumping it down the drain, right? So how much of that are you going to do? So you, that, that's a challenge, right? And it's going to be a challenge because just like Taylor said, if you're out saying, hey, we're going to open and you've got three beers that are supposed to be the same and none of them taste the same, that's not great for repeat business. Your equity partners, right? Who are, who are you going to get? You'll notice that I, and partners and investors have been on all three of my slides. Do you think that's a hot topic right now? It super is. What about your competition, right? And so where are you going to go? What's that competition going to do? Those are challenges, right? So everyone likes to brew IPAs and double IPAs and triple IPAs and 10 times IPAs now, right? And so if everyone's brewing the same, is yours better or worse than the next guy's? And so what are you going to do? What's your experience? We need to be able to highlight the experience because someone needs to be able to be a brewmaster and brewing on, you know, a stovetop in your house doesn't qualify to be a brewmaster, at least not by the SBA's definition. So are you winning awards? What are you doing to be able to say you have an experience? Are you bringing a consultant in? Is someone going to your leadership team that actually has commercial experience? Yes or no. And that's a big part about it. And then labor. You'd be surprised at how much that labor is going to cost you because I have a lot of guys right now who say, hey, can we push the loan payment back because we have to make payroll? When you start getting in the new model, your bartenders are not working for tips. They're working for dollars out of your pocket. And so you have to make sure that that labor cost is it's expensive because you're going to need a lot of people to run this unless you're planning on working all day long and then running a register after you brew all day. Right. So there, there are label costs to it. I'll show you this. You can't see it. But this is a typical balance uh, income statement for a less than $5 million brewery. A couple of things to note. <clears throat> the income of officer compensation is less than a couple of percent, right? So if you thought that you were going to get rich opening your brewery, it's going to be a while, all right? And just remember that there's lots of taxes and things like that that you're going to have to pay. And although there's a lot of great margins in the beer and the tap room, you know, it gets, it gets cut down a lot as you go out and distribution. So the more you get out and about, and I can send this, I'll have cards. I can send you all this. This comes from a group that we subscribe to. So I can give you a lot more money or a lot more information on this, but it's, it's thin, right? So if you, if you look at this, they're not making a ton of money and you, it's going to take some while before you really make some money. So make sure that you got your personal, like for me, the biggest thing to make sure you got your personal, uh, business under control, make sure that you can personally take care of your house and your car and your family, because the bills here are going to start getting pretty big, pretty quick. And so if you don't have, uh, 
your personal financials in order, it's going to make it really, really tough for you to be able to run an effective business. Thank you, Jason. You guys all pumped now? We've heard from the attorneys and the bankers and personal guarantees. And you know what we're going to talk about now is taxes. So accounting and tax considerations. So the only thing I remember from college psychology is Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And any of you who've talked to me, you probably heard this speech. Uh, but I adapt that. I interpret that how an accountant, how a tax person does. But basically, it says you've got to deal with first things first. You know, when you're opening your door, cash is king. you got to make sure you stay out of jail, don't get arrested, keep your doors open. And those are your priorities. But over time, as you evolve, you will move on to, you know, I want to add some equipment. I want to do this. Maybe need to borrow some more money or raise some additional capital. I want to offer, I want to attract better employees. I'm going to offer benefit plans and things like that. So just the whole idea, as we talk through this, a lot of what we're talking about today is keeping the doors open, preserving cash during your startup phase and getting yourself, getting your brewery open, and then kind of moving on to the next stages. So, you know, initial considerations, you need, need to decide whether you're going to be a brewery or brew pub, your name, marketing concept, you need to protect your intellectual property. Uh, Taylor didn't even talk about how many people come in. They got this great name for a brewery, and then strike one. All right, well, here's my next name. Strike two, strike three, strike four. You're up to about strike 11 before you can settle on something, unless you got something just completely off the wall. So, And once you have something, you've got to protect it. You better go register that right away before somebody else takes that. And heaven help you when you start trying to name all your beer names because uh, there's just uh, 6,000 breweries, uh, craft breweries in the U.S. today, and you can multiply that times how many beers they're producing. Uh, the names are in short supply. So, again, protecting that. Talked a little bit about your location and your demographics of your potential customer base. Are you going to distribute? Are you going to do more of your sales uh, locally through your tap room? Uh, so, and then you're pulling together your business plan. So you want to talk about your team, market study, and I stress the team here. You want to have people that understand the business from a brewing operations standpoint, but it also pays to have people that understand the financial side of this, people that understand uh, the regulatory framework. All of those people that are, whether they're in-house employees or they're part of your advisors that you're working with, you want to have all those people lined up so that they look like a, I'm a cyclist, so here's this racing team, and you see them, they're all leaning at the right angle, they're all in sync, kind of cruising along. And that's what you want your team. You want everybody in sync, hopefully maybe some performance-enhancing drugs. Uh, but you want everybody working hard and everybody pulling in the same direction and contributing to the success. And then finally, we talk about funding, you know, your investors as well as uh, bank loans and how you're going to come up with the money. The uh, capital funding, you need to decide how much you're going to need. Uh, you know, retail sales under SB 85 has opened up. You can operate on a much smaller scale profitably. In the old days, you had to go through distribution. The margins in distribution were very thin. You had to start off with a 3 or $4 million capital investment to, to make that successful. So, um, you know, that's changed a lot. So you, you need to factor that into your business plan. And then you have to look at the use of funds as you're going through this. So, yeah, to kind of to Taylor and to Jason's point earlier, your money is not going to go as far as you think it is. And you're going to run in delays at every stage of the game. You're going to try, whether it's trying to find a location, trying to get through the uh, regulatory process, trying to uh, identify your equipment, uh, lining up investors. Oh, I've got all these investors. They're committed. And then you start going through background checks or other things, and you find out maybe they're not as committed as you thought they were, and you have to go back around and circle. So again, everything takes longer, and during that process, you're going to be burning cash on legal fees uh, or you know, going through uh, traveling, trying to learn about the business, trying to attract investors. So um, you know, everything is going to be more expensive. And not to mention, once you open your brewery, there's going to be things that you didn't anticipate. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm in the process of working up my next article about business plans and advice for people starting a business. And uh, it's on the financial projections side and pro forma financials. It's going to, I think the, t the working title right now is Truth, uh, Truth Fiction, and Bald-Faced Lies. 
because it's it's a it's a long shot to get those things started. It takes a lot of work, and by and large, your projections. Anybody that's in here that's going to open a brewery and thinks they're going to make money in twelve months, you're you maybe have spent some time in Colorado or Washington uh, and smoking some. Um, <laughs> that could be for performance enhancing. Well, um, so in terms of your Capital funding, again, you can start and I rank these things here. You've got bank loans. So, you know, those are obviously through a third-party relationship with your bank. You could have investor loans. So people that want to invest in your company, they can make a loan to you. By and large, they're going to be subordinate to the bank loans because the bank's going to get their money first. So if your investors want to make uh, investment in the company in the form of a loan, just understand they're going to have to subordinate to the bank. The bank's going to get repaid first. And then you get into different hybrid you know, debt equity structures, depending on how sophisticated you want to get, or just straight equity investment. I will tell you, in most situations, it's better to keep it simple. If you can keep everybody uh, on the same level playing field in terms of their ownership, or keep it to you know, some simple preferred equity or preferred returns for a small group of investors, it'll keep everybody's life uh, more simple. Um, so, but there's different things, and depending on what you're looking for, and really what your investors are looking for, you need to consider different uh, different alternatives there. Uh, the founders, and so that all of you in this room, you're thinking about owning a brewery, and whether you're putting in your own capital, putting in some of the money yourself, hopefully, um, you're also going to be doing. You're going to be the one that's going to be scrubbing the toilets and doing all the other things. There's a lot to be said for sweat equity, and you ought to be compensated for that. But you do have to strike a good balance then in terms of what I am doing and how I'm being rewarded through the appreciation of my ownership. And again, maybe I'm not contributing as much cash, but I'm I'm contributing in the form of sweat equity. Well, what's that worth? And you really ought to put yourself on the other side of this too, which is as I'm working with an investor group. How much should they be willing to give me in terms of ownership in this venture without put, they're putting up their hard-earned dollars, you're putting up your, your time and effort. So you got to strike an appropriate balance there so that the rewards are there for you as the founders of the brewery, uh, of your, of your craft business, but also the, you know, the, the financial rewards are there for your investors as well. So big decisions coming out of the gate, you know, what choice of entity, I think every brewery that I'm working with today, every craft business is formed as an LLC. Well, we had a little thing called the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that passed at the end of last year. The top individual tax rates are still up in the high 30s, 36, 37 percent, plus some other taxes. The new corporate tax rate is 21 percent. So there are a lot of people that historically this was a no-brainer. You form as an LLC. It's very flexible. You can do a lot of just about anything you want in the context of an LLC. Uh, A C corporation is a lot more structured. Well, with that differential in the rates and given the fact one of the big downsides you'll see there in red for a C corporation is you're subject to double taxation. So basically you do pay corporate level taxes now at 21%, but if you ever distribute your earnings, uh, your profits out to the shareholders, they're going to pay tax on it again as a dividend. Well, for most of you, when you're starting and for the first, for one, you're going to lose money probably for the first 12 to 18 months, 24 months. But even once you start making money, you're going to reinvest a lot of that back into the business because you're going to be expanding, buying additional equipment or replacing equipment that's wearing out. So if you're not distributing anything out to shareholders, you know, maybe it makes more sense to operate as a C corporation. A lot of people it, since December 22nd are reevaluating that. So that, that certainly changes things. Uh, we have not seen very many uh, form as S corporations at this point. Basically, an S corporation is also a pass-through entity, but in the context of an LLC, uh, there's probably more advantages and less restrictions on operating as an LLC versus an S corporation. So um, anyway, we'd be happy to talk with any of you about those things. Uh, One thing I will say that's kind of slanting more and more towards C-corporations these days is we're talking to people as founders that maybe want to tap into some of their retirement funds. And so if you could do a rollover of some of your funds into your employer, your new new craft beverage business, there are some ways to do that. 
Uh, certainly that is your nest egg for retirement. You probably don't want to go all in on this, but it is a way you can possibly uh, raise some funds in the C-Corp context that aren't available as LLCs or S-corporations. So a lot of big decisions there. The initial checklist, as you've heard today, and T Taylor and I were talking earlier, uh, you know, when you're looking to start talking to investors, I hope you're talking to your attorney before you start talking to investors. If you've got a business plan about what you're going to spend, what the lead time is, I hope you're talking to your accountants and your bankers so that you understand how much equity you're going to have to put in. What is your lead time going to look like? How realistic are your pro forma financial projections? Um, and those people that you're working with, ought to know the industry. They need to understand the regulatory framework, the three-tier system, excise taxes at the federal and state level, and all of those things. So you want to make sure that you've got a knowledgeable group that you're working with. And again, I'd encourage that both inside your walls as well as your advisors. So you want to have the right team in place inside your brewery as well in terms of uh, operations, marketing, uh, financial, and other. When you're getting started, you need to incorporate immediately. You do not want to be signing leases in your personal name. So there's a lot of things that you want to set up at the outset. Make sure that you're incorporated and doing everything in your capacity as the corporation. And that, once you're incorporated, you want to treat this. You want to have a separate bank account. You want to start tracking your expenses in that company and then it, as soon as you form, even if you haven't opened the doors yet, you're going to start having tax filing responsibilities. So even if you're in startup phase, and it's not dramatically impactful, but the IRS and the state uh, are going to expect you to start filing some income tax returns related to your, your business venture. So you want to make sure you're staying on top of it. The last thing you want to do is start down the road. You're just getting started, and you're already delinquent on tax filings and paying penalties uh, or running into other uh, things that you really should have avoided. Uh, we talked about uh, evaluating also uh, accounting software, so things you can use, tools to make your life easier so that you're not having to uh, spend all of your time and energy tracking bills going out and things like that. And particularly when you get started, you want to evaluate software packages, accounting software. Again, we've got Josh McKinney here from Eco that uh, uh, have some very specific applications in the craft brewing business. So we're going to give him a moment here uh, in just a few minutes to talk a little bit about that as well. So anyway, that's a quick rundown of the kind of things to think about as you're getting started. Again, this isn't going to take you necessarily through the next 10 years of your corporation, and you will evolve over time. But these are the things you need to do up front to make sure you're making payroll, keeping the lights on, making good beer, uh, taking care of your employees. Thank everybody here. We're going to turn it back over to uh, Tim and Aaron uh, for the next part of the program. Thank you very much. We appreciate the information, everyone. Yeah. Round of applause here. So we got some great information presented to us here, but we wanted to take a little time and allow any questions that anyone has for any of our panelists. So anybody have a question that they would like answered? Hey, um, this question's for Jason. So I was wondering about, you talked about the reserve. Is there a good rule of thumb for how much you should have in a reserve? There is a good rule of thumb. Uh, it should be, I, I like to say that it's 12 months worth of payment to the bank and 12 months worth of rent payment. That way you at least know that for the next year, you're going to be able to pay your, de your debt and pay your rent and then, you know, everything else is kind of flexible. So just, you know, 12 months of, of debt and uh, rent payment. This is a question more for Taylor. Um, we have chosen to go the brew pub route, and the regulations, at least the last that I read, require that at least 50% of the revenue come from non-alcohol. What happens if that percentage is skewed where we do 55 or 60% alcohol? You're done. They're going to come shut you down. <laughs> Not really, no. It's um, it's actually pretty rare that any jurisdiction audits it. That's not to say that you should go out and do it. Um, if anything, you might get a citation where you'll typically, at least at the state level, there's a progressive disciplinary policy. So if you were to get cited again, the you know fine would be higher than it was the first time, that sort of thing. But Probably um, nothing more severe than a fine. You're not going to get a suspension or a revocation. 
as long as you can show it wasn't intentional. We talked about this is kind of for, for Jason. Um, what about? Can you talk a little bit about pilot brewing? As far as being able, could it be a way to start up smaller operations before in a licensing aspect? There, it's odd actually because there is this license classification at the federal level for a pilot brewery. Although you have to go through the exact same steps that you do to to get the federal brewer's notice, so I don't know that there's any real advantage to it. Um, if you're going to go forward with those steps, you might as well get the federal brewer's notice. Um, it's not going to help you in terms of being able to test brew or anything like that prior to actually opening. You're still going to have to have all levels of licensing. You know, for instance, if you got the, the pilot brewing permit at the federal level, you still have to get a state manufacturing license and a local manufacturing license to match to that pilot brewing license. So if you're going to have to go through all those steps, you might as well get the full-on federal brewer's notice. So the question was, uh, how soon into the process do you have to use a three-year, three-tier system? Can you start with kind of an SB63 type plan and then move to, say, SB85? So you can rely solely on retail sales for as long as you can remain open. There's no requirement that you have to use a wholesaler or a distributor. Um, if you want to start selling your product so that it's available out in retail outlets, other bars and grocery stores, you're going to have to use a wholesaler. But there's nothing that forces you to do that. You could just sell right out of the tap room if that's what you so chose. So, so if you brew like 3,000 barrels to start off with, you could just sell all through the tap room. Then. That's correct. All, all 3,000 barrels. You don't have to sign up for the three-tier system immediately. No. And if you can produce 3,000 barrels and sell 3,000 <laughs> barrels out of your tap room, good for you. You should do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Panelists, thank you so much for your expert input here. We're going to take a quick break, then we're going to talk to some brewers about starting a brewery. Thank you. Thanks once again for tuning in for this special episode of Beer Guys Radio. Make sure to check out part two of the series where George's professional brewers share information on what they wish they'd known before starting their brewery. For more news, information, and interviews on the craft beer world, visit BeerGuysRadio.com or subscribe to Beer Guys Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Cheers. Duke's Mail. Do you get it? Because only the ones that get it really get it. Your friends get it. Your mom gets it. Your grandma gets it. Your neighbors get it. Sometimes a dog gets it. Get out of there. What else? Uh, your potato salads get it, BLTs get it, tailgates get it, and restaurants get it too. By now, even you probably get it. So get it today. Made without any sugar since 1917, Dukes is that little southern something that makes good things better. Get Dukes. It's got twang.